Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, and I'm here with my guest host, Don Gibson. Hey there. Ooh, you sound very excited today, Don. I am excited. Oh, Come good, on. good, good. It sounded, you know, you had got some bad news recently or something. We are excited. At least I am. Don is getting more excited as we speak. And we are going to talk about some very interesting films today in our series that we've continued on films by great directors that weren't as well known through their catalogs. And uh, today we're going to start with a film that Don selected. Don, why don't you introduce your film? Let's just move forward. Let's do it. Well, it's a, it's called The Straight Story, and it's by David Lynch. It was uh, made... Uh... 1999, so 23 years ago. Um, so David Lynch is, you know, I believe most people know that he's known for, you know, quite difficult narratives to follow. A lot of uh, visuals that are, you know, I guess you'd say artistically driven. The narrative has never been his main, main focus. I mean, like a, a standard narrative where, you know, there's a story arc, etc. He likes, uh, you know, abstract imagery and really confusing things going on. So his the first film he's known best for is uh, The Elephant Man. Uh, not, well, uh, before El Elephant Man was his first uh, Hollywood film. And then he, but the first film he did that, that sort of established his aesthetic was Eraserhead, which was an extraordinarily odd film, which I really enjoyed. You know, afterwards he did Blue Velvet. Uh, he did a really interesting version of Dune that many people, you know, decried, but then, um, you know, now it's sort of a cult thing, I guess. Um, so he's been in Mulholland Drive and he's known for these films that are really difficult to follow with really bizarre imagery. And you really got to be into the, you know, to, to go on for a pretty crazy ride with uh, David Lynch. This film is the complete opposite of that. There could not be a more straightforward narrative. You know, ironically enough, Lynch called this film his most experimental film. Um, it was actually, he did it for Walt Disney. The, the narrative is incredibly straightforward about a, a man named Alvin Strait, who drove his essentially lawnmower tractor uh, about 300 miles to visit uh, a brother that he had lost, his relationship had dissolved with him. And uh, so he drives this, this tractor across middle America to, to visit him. And that is the story. And it's based on a factual thing that actually happened to a guy that's called uh, The Straight Story because it's based on the story of Alvin Strait, who actually did this. And it's basically a complete retelling of this story of him visiting his brother. What were your impressions of it, Ben? Did you uh, enjoy the, the the story, the the film? You know, I thought I thought it was a it was a you know it's a cute little story. As you said, being based on a, a true story, made it. I found it a little bit more interesting. What I liked about it, it does give a nice little snapshot of Middle America and, and how it has that kind of quaint hospitality and how he was treated along the way uh, by folks who. Uh, became invested in his journey. To see people reach out and help an old man who's doing something really wacky is something that brings out an emotional connection to as you're watching the film. And, you know, Richard Forsyth, who uh, played the main character, uh, Alvin Strait, shared in, in this- Richard Farnsworth. Oh, I'm sorry, Richard Farnsworth. Uh, who's Richard Forsyth? Is he, is he an author, maybe? I don't know. I know. 
No, now you're. I I know a Forsyth, but it's not Richard. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's Richard, not so going to help. Richard Farnsworth, uh, who by the way was the exact age of this guy when he took the role, and he was basically retired seventy nine in incredible pain and discomfort. And you can see that. I mean, it wasn't hard for him to really show that he was a, basically a crippled old man because he was a crippled old man. So it wasn't a stretch to play this part. The idea of him going on this journey to replicate this person's real life story, I think was a real draw for Farnsworth because he took this role because he admired the man and, and what he did. I know that I think shortly after the film was uh, completed, less than a year, uh, Richard Farnsworth took his own life because of the pain he was going through and his own dehabilitation and, and his illnesses that were been living with. He had just had enough and the pain was too much. I think he just took his own life in New Mexico. I think he, he was living in New Mexico at the time. But the film overall, it was a nice journey. You know, I thought there were some strong roles. The um, Sissy Spacek role was interesting. Uh, you know, I was a little confused about exactly her intellectual capabilities because she seemed at some points to have a little bit of wisdom, but she also seemed to be easily confused. And so, you know, that uh, I found a little distracting, but I thought she did a very good job. And some of the other supporting cast members, I thought also were, were good, you know, just the very, very snapshot lives of people coming in and out of the story because he was moving across, I believe it was Iowa for the most part and was and then into Wisconsin. Correct. What about the supporting role of a Harry Dean Stanton? What did you think of his portrayal? You know, he he wasn't in it for very long. I mean, it was just a, not in it for very long. Most of the characters were, to be honest with you, with the exception of the couple that he stays with when his his John Deere motor breaks out. Not not a lot of uh, longevity to the the characters coming in and out of his his life at this time because he was you know transient in this journey. The Farley brothers who played um, the mechanics who fixed his lawn more. I did not know, but their third brother was supposed to be in the movie, but he he had killed himself in a drug overdose. Chris Farley was the the third brother of, the, of those three, which I had not known uh, until I did a little research on the film. Are we talking about the same Chris Farley that we all know? Yeah, yeah, the Saturday Night Live. Uh, those, were, those were his actual brothers. That is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't know that either. Uh, a little interesting side side story to this film. Yeah, well, I mean, so you mentioned uh, uh, Sissy Spacek. She's a great actor. You're right. The street, character of the street talks about her and, and, and how, how everyone else talks about her is that she's slow and she doesn't know what's going on. And, and there's re- reference made to her. Their kids were taken away from her. and and But she does say really thoughtful, interesting things. And she's just marvelous. I mean, she is so convincing in this role of this daughter that is, is devoted to her father, but struggles with, you know, you know, I guess basic communications. And so I thought she was actually quite wonderful. And I totally agree. Uh, uh, Farnsworth is, is really good in the role. I mean, talk about a portrayal of, you know, middle America, you know, common sense and, you know, just, just wanting to do the right thing. These kinds of, threads the narrative are portrayed really well through his character. Uh, I'd say one of the highlights of the film for me is when he um, has uh, a conversation, you know, this is a series of vignettes, essentially he, you know, as we said, he travels across the middle America and he just meets various people. Um, uh, But he, he meets, he meets this one fellow that says, you want to have a beer with me? The character Alvin Stray doesn't drink, but he has milk with him in the bar. And the, the guy he meets tell his, his, 
tragic story of his uh, experiences in World War II. And then Farnsworth he tells his story, and it's a story of him, the friendly fire. He's on the, you know, the front lines. He's a sniper. He, he's actually a sniper. He's a sniper, and he shoots what he thinks is a German, and it's at night. And then the next day, they find out it was a... It was the scout, the guy who went out in advance. And yeah. nobody else knew that they thought a German had taken the guy out, but he knew exactly. from the shot that he had killed him. I was going to say, he just had kept it inside him until this moment where these two vets decided to share some yeah. war stories over beer. And so, yeah, I thought that was very powerful. I actually didn't remember that until you brought it up again. Yeah. That scene is just so powerful. And it's just, it basically it's a one shot of two guys sitting at a bar from the bartender's point of view. And it's, it's surprising how intense it is because it's a, it's a long scene. It's about eight minutes long and the way he describes it and you kind of know, it's like, Oh, this is going to go terribly, but the way he delivers it, it it's not, overly emotional there's there's very little background music in this film it's just almost almost like a whole movie not exactly but, but kind of has that feeling there is some music here at yeah, there's time. some music you know you get the the scenic views as he's traveling oh, there's, there's yeah. actually i enjoyed the uh the score but i meant in that specific scene there's not like generally we'd have like this intense music and he's portraying it we zooming in on his face and they don't do that it's just like sitting at a bar and he tells a story and then the other guy is just sitting, listening to it. And then you're listening to it. It's like, what a horrible thing to have on your conscience or to always remember that you did. And you don't tell anybody about it because you don't, you, what's the point in telling anybody about it? Cause no one's going to help you. I guess you could tell your therapist about it, but you can't talk about these things because they're just so gut wrenching. So it, that was one of the highlights for me. And also the, this, the sissy basic uh, acting, also, the ending, I thought, I mean, it is bizarre. Harry D. Stanton, you know, very well-known actor. It's obviously near the end of his career. But, um, you know, that's the brother that he's going to visit. And he arrives at his little house and they he comes out and he just sits on the porch with him and they look at the stars together, which is a motif in the film. But, I mean, you know, literally his scene is a minute and a half long. And I think there's two lines of dialogue and... It's like, why is Harry Dean Stanton in this role? I was, I was thinking there'd be something else to it, but there's not much. So understated is what I would definitely say about this film. There are problems in it. Um, there's lots of scenes that I think are kind of half done. Like you talked about the the brothers, the mechanics that are they argue, and it seems kind of half done to me, and it's not as effective as it could be. Obviously, they're they're not looking for like you know Jim Carrey, I guess Chris Farley kind of hilarity um it's sort of like you know local funny stuff but there's a lot of other scenes like he's got these scenes early on when he's got all his buddies at the local hardware store when he finds out that he's going on this trip there's this sort of chatter in the in the hardware store which just kind of is really meandering and there's a runaway girl that he runs into on the road and he and she's running away because she's pregnant as an older family and, he, and they share hot dogs together overnight. And he has this whole metaphor of sticks being bound together and that's what's strong. And so there's a lot of scenes that for me kind of really fell flat, a um, little bit simplistic. And, you know, I don't know if today's audience would really have the patience to, to follow this movie. There are moments that I did, did enjoy and I thought were effective, but, uh, it, it seemed to me almost like a made-for-TV straight story. 
fascinating thing about the production is they shot everything on location chronologically exactly where Alvin Strait went. So there was a documentary aspect to it. They actually followed his exact route. They shot everything where it was supposed to happen. So that commitment I thought was really interesting. But if you're just going to watch the film, you don't know that. Um, this is a kind of film I think people might lose, especially if you watch it because you're looking for a David Lynch film. Uh, I definitely would not recommend David Lynch film fans to watch this because there's like one moment when he crosses the, the, the there's a bridge from between Iowa and uh, Wisconsin across the Mississippi. And there's a sort of weird discordant music that plays. And I thought, oh, weird things are going to happen now, which is typical of David Lynch. Weird sort of moments that are like the human psyche, what's going to happen. But then nothing really happens. Now he's just in Wisconsin. And nothing new happens. Yeah, well, so. I would say that uh, it's it's a love story with kind of the American traditional values and views on a 100%. certain level. I, that's what I got from this a little bit. You know, uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier about how it was kind of strange how they end by just sitting there quietly on the porch next to each other, not talking and, you know, looking at the stars. It did bring back memories of my grandfather, and his two brothers, who his whole life, they all lived in the same little town in Southern California. And uh, when I came and visited in the summers, you know, for most of my childhood, my grandfather would have me fly out and, and stay with him. And so I'd see my my uncles um, and they'd come up to the to the house and they, you know, they just sit there and, and some, you know, just had a lot of very minimal discussions, just enjoying their company as, as old men. Who knew each other their whole lives and you know they would talk about a few small things every once in a while but they it was it was this weirdly kind of comforting quiet bonding that they've always had their whole lives and they were just satisfied to be in each other's presence and that kind of reminded me a little bit this that scene of having seen that experience with my grandfather and his two brothers who you know this is in their 70s or 80s or whatever and it just kind of had that same kind of connection to me of seeing that observation. And maybe that's, you know, kind of what he was trying to communicate in that scene is that comfort of knowing somebody, regardless of not seeing them or falling out after 12 or 13 or 20 years or whatever it was. So I did that. That did resonate strongly with me, that that scene, because it did remind me of my own grandfather and his and his brothers, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not disparaging the scene. I, I think there was some sort of, uh, as you say, there's a, some profundity to it. I just, um, I don't know. I, I was expecting, I don't know if I was expecting David Lynch. I wasn't expecting some crazy weird thing to happen in the end or anything. But uh, it's just, it, I mean, this film is understated. Is what it is. It's an understated film, and um, it's not going to blow your socks off. You know, there's definitely moments in it that make you think. And you know, for, you know, for people that are interested in film, you know, I should mention, you know, a former student of mine, uh, Sam Wen Jones, he recommended, I think about this. And I was thinking, you're right. I've never seen David Lynch's straight story uh, because it seemed a little bit too, uh, you know, straightforward to me. And it didn't seem that interesting. And, but the fact that David Lynch directed it is a very interesting thing because of his, you know, his filmography, everything is so different and everything he, he did is got an entirely different aesthetic. So from the point of view of, of people that are real interested in film, uh, it, it is an interesting film to see because it's just so different than what he what he's known for. Uh, yeah, maybe in a very narrow context, it's an interesting film to see. 
but in a lot of broader bases, it's not that interesting of a film to see. It has its moments, but you know, it, it kind of meanders. And you know, if you have the time and it's you, you want to see something that you wouldn't see from a guy like David Lynch, then this is the film that you probably would want to watch. I got through it, and uh, there were some points <laughs> I enjoyed. Uh, would I watch it again? Absolutely not. You got through it. That's amazing. Congratulations. Uh, well, you know, I'm not. You know, I actually agree with you. I don't think it's the it's it's not as I said. I think it's, there's aspects that are are missing. But he was nominated for a best actor that year, and he won a couple of other small. I think New York critics uh, gave him best actor, and I think there was a lot of sentiment sentimentality attached to it, as often happens, uh, because of his um, you know his uh, uh, poor health. I think he's really good. He's certainly very convincing in his role. I don't I don't know if I would say it's a, a film to go see. I have to I have to admit. All right. Well, I think we covered it pretty well. Why don't we move on to our next film, which is a 1994 film uh, called Quid Show by directed by Robert Redford. Uh, the screenplay was adapted by Paul uh, Adonazio, uh, who is well known. He got nominated for this. Um, and he was also the writer of Donnie Brasco. Is that, is that what it was called? Donnie Brasco? The, the one with Johnny Depp and the, the, about the gangster with the... Donnie Brasco is correct. Yeah. Very good film. I enjoyed that film as well. Uh, so this guy has... And his brother is the primary owner of the Milwaukee Brewers, which I did not know. Probably nobody... Could be everywhere. Until I brought it up. Uh, this was a f- very well-received film. Uh, I think to this day, it's 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was nominated for four Oscar nominations, including picture, director, uh, supporting actor for uh, Paul Schofield, who played um, the Van Duren father, uh, and the screenplay, Paul uh, Adonazio, as I said. Uh, it starred John Turturro, Rob Morrow, Ralph Fiennes, uh, David Paymore, who's an excellent supporting actor, who's been a lot of great stuff. I really enjoy him. He played the quiz show producer, uh, and he's been in a lot of really good. Great character actor. Yeah, great character actor. Just a very good. And then, of course, Paul Schofield, is, who's a well-known and established person. And, and you're missing one other person. Martin Scorsese is a star in this Well, film. I mean, there's a lot of smaller parts. Uh, yeah, Martin Scorsese. Yeah, and I think, Martin Scorsese. Uh, Barry Levinson is the lead. That's um, true. There's a there's there's a little bit of a homage to some of the uh, some of the directors of other other films. So the film is based on the idea that in the 50s, there were these quiz shows that were rigged and uh, they were often, uh, you know, setting up the contestants based on looks and entertainment quality and fatigue. If people were it seemed like they were getting tired of the contestants, then they would set them up to get excluded. Oftentimes the patterns were there'd be a, like an intellectual Jewish person who did very well. And then they would bring in a Gentile who would, who would knock that person out and they would go back and forth. And there seemed to be patterns to that. And it became a little bit of a scandal. Um, and the, A little and, bit of a scandal. Yeah, yeah. I think it, yeah, I wouldn't call it a huge scandal. I think it was just, you know, it, was, it, it had its... Uh, 15 minutes of fame but i wouldn't you know it wasn't like the the red scare or the you know the mccarthy hearings or anything like that it was just something you know something that some senators grabbed onto for a little bit but it actually you know they didn't get very far with it there was no traction the nbc guys didn't get in trouble the you know the the person who basically the people who got in trouble were the, like the the low-end totem pole people 
and that was it, you know, and including the, the, the contestants who were set up to do the cheating anyway. Uh, and it happened to be that there was a lot of traction to that part because Charles Van Duren, who was a Columbia professor whose father was a, just a well-noted professor also at Columbia and, and a national poet, I, I believe, um, had a lot of name value. So, you know, they were kind of run through the ringer in this, in this film where we see that uh, John Turturro's character, uh, uh, Stemple, I believe his name was Stemple. Uh, he, Stemple, I love yeah, that role. He was actually very good, very just a quirky Jewish, unlikable Jewish guy from Brooklyn. And he, he gets 15 seconds of fame being on this TV show. And he really kind of builds his ego up and thinks he's 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 going to be the next big thing. When the reality is he's just not that pleasant of a person. And uh, so the the at some point, the TV show producers decide to push him out and bring in. Uh, they, they find in this uh, Charles Van Duren, who's, you know, a very waspy Columbia professor type. And, and so they bring him in and he doesn't want to cheat. But they start setting him up with with uh, questions that he had practiced with, so he already knew the answers, and so he could either intentionally, you know, not get knocked out or win the money and and continue. And so he sells himself out, and you know, you see this development of his compromising this, also driven by the ego and the visibility and the, the celebrity and the money, and he starts to buy into that a lot. Meanwhile, Stemple is not happy that he got knocked out and is trying to stir this up and get traction for some investigations to happen. And in fact, they do happen. Rob Murrow, who plays the congressional investigator, uh, who also was uh, very good in, uh, was it Northern Exposure? Was he in that? With the, was he the doctor in Northern Exposure? I believe he was. It was a quirky kind of CBS series done in Alaska where he has to go and pay off his loans by getting hired to be a doctor in some small town. He was very good in that. David Paymore, who plays the producer of the show, just a kind of weaselly, you know, opportunist who's trying to get the, the show to be successful all the time and, and, you know, make the sponsors Geritol happy and the Geritol guys also in it. And, you know, we see a lot of how the back end of these 50s programs worked and how television, you know, was really building up an impact in society. And then, you know, so we see these guys climb into these, these high profile things and then eventually fame and corruption brings them down. And, you know, it tells a nice little story of this happening in this very specific instance with this one show called, um, what was it called? 21? Was that what? 21. Yeah, 21. 21. And the reality is there were other shows that were doing that too. And that also $64,000 question, I believe also had some scandals and, you know, and it was just this kind of time during where they realized there's some compromises in our perfect Eisenhower society and that the things, there's a little more of a darker side. And we see that development that this show, this film gives us a little bit of that, the, the dark side of the Eisenhower years. Uh, and, you know, it probably does, mirror a little bit of the whole, you know, red scare and communism thing on a certain level, because we see this congressional investigation, but really the congressional investigation, it, it softballs all the power people who would ultimately take responsibility with this. And it really attacks, you know, more of the victims of, of so cheating. The pawns. Some the of pawns. The, the pawns and the, yeah, the contestants who were who were, you know, roped into these situations. And, you know, the ultimate punishment here is, is that NBC, you know, pushes Charles Van Duren out. He had given him a show where he was like a national educator, but then they t fire him when the hearings happen. Uh, Columbia fires him. And 
Uh, you know, the film goes on to say that he never taught again. But the one thing he does say in his autobiography is that, in fact, he did later on go on to teach again. And that was something that he was upset that the movie didn't didn't share because he felt that was not an accurate part of of the development of the epilogue of the story. Well, there's well, a bunch of in, there's a bunch of inaccuracies about because, yeah. you know, Hollywood, the movie always wants to make, you know, this maximize entertainment. It's entertainment. And so he actually, you know, uh, Van Doren, uh, he didn't lose his job. He actually stayed teaching. Um, you know, it was difficult for him at the time. He had a girlfriend in the middle of this. She didn't leave him. It wasn't a huge fi- family trauma the way they, they portray as well. Uh, but as you say, I mean, the point of it is, you know, it's the American dream. Everyone's like, I can do something and I can rise up. And and the truth is you can rise up, but, you know, look out, look, watch your back because you know, the quicker you rise, obviously, the quicker you yeah. fall. And the people, as it's point portrayed in the film, you know, they, you know, the congressional, the guy Goodwin really wanted to get was the, you know, the president of Geritol, the the guy that he and he and, you know, the way the film portrays it is they were basically saying, we don't like this person, we don't like this person and to get them out. And the president of the advertising company was telling NBC what to do and NBC was acquiescing. So those two players, the person that ran the company that was sponsoring and the president of NBC who were totally complicit and in charge of the whole thing. One of my favorite epilogues in this in the film, which is historically accurate, is the two uh, producers, Enright and Friedman. They actually went to jail for, I don't know, a period of time, like uh, a couple of years or something. But then they and then they were like, you know, ostracized. Then they came back into the entertainment business. And they, their first show they launched was The Joker's Wild, which was in the early mid 70s, which I love game shows. And this is one of my favorites of all time. And it was just a ridiculous kind of a version, really, of like, I guess, blackjack on with a spinning wheel and, and match. I guess, no, uh, the, the, you know, slot the, machines, the slot machines, slot machine is what it was. And then there was Jokers and all this stuff. And and the show was incredibly popular for four years. And so they were out of the out of the out of, out of the whole game for a while. But then because they were loyal and they didn't name names, they were brought back in and. They well, were if doing they it make, again. If they could make the the network's money, you know. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure Joker's Wild, which I love as a as a young person, was completely rigged. And but that's yeah. the whole point because they want these shows to be rigged because you want the people that people like to win. And if we don't like them, um, the show doesn't want them to win. And it's it's ridiculous. But yeah. it's, it's, it's 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 entertainment is what it is. You know, it's interesting you brought up to it because they did a reboot of Joker's Wild a few years ago with uh, Snoop Dogg as the host. No. And uh, not good. Apparently, uh, I, I you know it was quite uh, it was it was quite um, weedy. But, let's say it, it was celebrity oriented, and this whole thing was uh, what was the guy's name? It was Jack? No, Jack something, not Jack Parr. It was the and he was the host, and it's just about people spinning and trying to win money, and yeah, that's yeah, the fun yeah. thing. You don't want clever repartee in these, these shows. You want cheesy announcers and then everyday people trying to win. That's the point of these shows. I, you know, I think that the other guy, the assistant producer guy uh, that got, got in trouble, he actually ended up going to work for Penthouse Magazine <laughs> and, uh, and, and ended up working for that publication for quite a while. So. But I mean, I, I want to go back to the historical aspect of it. You know, my mother, 
this this scandal was was I mean it wasn't the Red Scare and it wasn't you know the Cold War or anything, but I mean it was a huge deal. My mother loved the show. My mother was a very conservative person, and she remembers very well every Tuesday night, whatever at night it was, everybody went home. Everybody went home to see Twenty One. Like it was like Survivor when it first came out, or and that was that was in Canada, right? Yeah, but it, exactly. It was in Canada, but it was they were just mirroring what was happening in America and everybody went and it was a hyped event. And when this happened and Robert Redford talks about why he took the project on, he was a kid when this happened. He, he just said he couldn't it, for him, as you said, it was Eisenhower years. You, you believe what was being said on the television and these people, oh, it was a game and it was real and it was we can believe these people. And I guess we just want to believe now when we see these shows you know we don't have that same faith um but my mother was just like you know she was not traumatized but she was really upset when it happened because she thought it was all real um and i was thinking you know recently with this the, the will uh, smith slap i watched the oscars and when it happened i thought the whole thing was a staged event i was convinced it was staged it was all just to get better ratings for the Oscars. I think I'm sort of still believing that, but now all the news is like, no, it's not. He's been banned from the Academy and all this kind of stuff, but I'm totally jaded. When I watch shows, I don't believe any of it. I think it's all lies, but in this era, people really believed. They really thought it was all real and everybody's in, in sound booths where they couldn't hear. It all seemed complete, incredibly legitimate. And this was sort of the, you know, the, a little bit of the innocence of America vanishing it had the sense that people were going to get past this and it was just a flash in the pan but it was the start of i think uh, the public disintegration of some of the traditional values that had been sold so much as a as the 50s american and then there's uh, the belief in it the belief in it and then we see that you know and then we see the darkness of the vietnam war and and the, the you know the Nixon presidency you know i think this was kind of like the the downslope start of that deterioration of, of it being so public because television gave us that ability to kind of share it so yeah. much more easily and you know we see that with the tele- televising those hearings and things of that nature because you know one thing that television needed at the beginning was it needed content yeah, but the idea when television started was it would be this great opportunity to learn so many things. Edward R. Murrow, when he first he he did the transition radio to television, and he said he his belief in the beginning was that the television would be the classroom of America. It took him like three years to realize it's it's the marketplace. It's all it is. It's about selling stuff. It's not about learning. And that's like you know you know people love Jeopardy. Uh, I don't know if everyone's challenged the integrity of Jeopardy or anything, but people love watching these shows. I love game shows. I don't really believe in the integrity of, uh, of many of these shows, but I love the just the fun of watching it. And the reason we watch it is because it's entertaining. And the reason they show it is because people watch it, and then they advertisers sponsor it. It's not because we're learning anything. Maybe, maybe people think that we learned something on Jeopardy, but uh, I'm not even sure about that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, overall, a well done film. Uh, it captured a snapshot of, of what we, you know, what was happening in America at that time with television. And, you know, I liked, I enjoyed that back end part of it. I enjoyed seeing the technical side of it. And, you know, I, at the end, it, it was a movie that just kind of gave you something. And then you walked away thinking, okay, I learned a little bit about something that happened in the past. A couple of things I do want to add 
is uh, I think I, I love John Turturro as an actor, and I think this is one of his great roles. Um, he's he's a great character actor. I've seen him on stage a couple of times, and I, I just think he's he's just so convincing in his roles. And in, when he talked about this um, portrayal, he talked about how he felt excluded because of his background and how people perceive him. He's obviously not a, a great beauty like uh, Ralph Fiennes, who plays Van Doren. So I love the film from that perspective. Also, it's actually quite beautifully shot. It's very thoughtfully shot. There's a great scene when um, Van Doren, played by Ralph Fiennes, he's been sucked into this thing. And, and when he goes on for his first show, they gave him all the questions that he practiced with. So they basically gave him a whole bunch of home run balls. And then he was just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I, I, I can't accept this. And then they say, hey, come down the elevator with us. He says, no, I'm not going to. And he, instead he goes down the staircase and there's this great whirling shot conveying his like confusion. And, and at the bottom, he comes out like, I'm winning on this show and I'm excited. And it's just like this great visual representation of what his psyche is. And it's not some sort of crazy, you know, confusing shot, but it really is. a. There's a lot of shot. Michael Ballhaus was the the DOP in this, and it's it's uh, beautifully rendered. The one thing I do want to say is that we, I thought the concept of this was we're going to choose people's lesser known films. And I would say this is one of Redford's best films. And I could definitely choose a few that are terrible. I think it's a really good film by Redford. This is not an obscure Redford film. It's uh, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't well supported by Disney. Was it Disney that, or Buena Vista? It wasn't, it. it wasn't considered a, a box office success. It cost 31 million and internationally it all in with all the international, which they don't really count as was at 52 million. But I think in the U in the U S it was like 20 million, something like that. Uh, 22 million. And then part of the two was that, you know, when they went to show it at festivals, you know, like the Berlin Festival agreed to show it, Redford was supposed to go and he didn't even go make an appearance as part of the contract. Uh, and so I think they got a little annoyed with his lack of, of press on it. They didn't really, you know, push it too much. Well, I think it's one of his best. Uh, Ordinary People obviously is a very well-made film and, and I love Milagro Beanfield War. And then I guess some people like River runs through it. And then after that, there's a steep cliff that goes down. Yeah. yeah. The films he makes, so. well, you know, Lions for Lambs. I thought that was, I enjoyed it. But it, it was, there was a lot of mixed messaging forced through it. Anyway. All right. Well, I think we covered these well. And uh, as we move forward in this series, we'll probably do at least one more of these. And one more. At, yeah. I think at least one more. And I'm thinking maybe we should do a whole Will Smith episode. Oh, best of Will Smith films. That would be interesting. That oh, yeah. Because that's going to be, you know, going to be hard to find soon. Yeah. Well, you know, he's banned from the Oscars for 10 years. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, we'll see how All right. Plays out. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of Cinema Around the Corner. And we look forward to seeing you next time. See you later. Mm-hmm.